0: You may turn in your Bibles to the 8th chapter of Acts. Acts chapter 8. Oh, how love I thy law, the psalmist, and we should say, it is my meditation all the day. We're glad that the Reformed Baptists want to be called Baptists. We're glad that most of them require rebaptism of those coming from Rome or her daughter's. We wish they grasped the, simp- the simple fact and the significance of this simple fact, that they rebaptize the reformed while they call themselves reformed Baptists. Right. Right. They reverence reformed doctrine and history so much they include it in their name. Do they think they can dilute the stigma of reformed by two seconds in a baptistry? Do they grasp what they say by rebaptism? Luther and Calvin were never baptized, is what they say. Do they grasp that their great heroes of the faith need a poor Baptist preacher and much water? Do they grasp that their great heroes could not learn this simplest of Bible doctrines? Do they boldly point out the corruption of Scripture that those men and other like them of the Reformed faith have done to the Bible to get rid of believers' baptism? Do they strictly avoid the term paedo-baptists and instead use the appropriate term infant sprinkling heretics? Since infant sprinkling is not a baptism of any kind, why do they call them paedo-baptists? That is the term that's used in many circles, paedo-baptists. Paedo meaning child, baptist meaning baptism. But it's not a baptism when you sprinkle or pour water on a person's forehead. Baptist means dipper, and baptism, whether it is in Greek or English, means... Immersion, but especially Greek, where that word baptizo comes from, meant to be dipped. We're thankful that they believe in believers' baptism by immersion, but we wish that they would be consistent in explaining to their congregations all that I just quickly ran over about what the doctrine of baptism says of those they have named themselves after. They should remember that Zwingli and others drowned Baptists as I have sent you in a link about Protestant persecution of the Baptists. Instead of limiting persecution to Rome and the Colosseum and being fed to lions and burned at the stake by the Catholics, they should remember the persecution that Baptists have endured at the hands of the Reformers. Whether in print, in prison, or in death, the Reformers hated and persecuted the Baptists. They slurred us as Anabaptists. Anabaptists means re-baptizers. But the Anabaptists didn't appreciate that title because they weren't really re-baptizers because they didn't consider that first application of water to have been baptism at all. That's right. So they still considered themselves Baptists. And we would say the same thing, that a little bit of application of H2O on a baby is not a baptism, so we're really not re-baptizing, though at times we do use that terminology. They need to remember that some of those reformers were baptismal regenerationists. that regeneration occurred by an infant having water applied to it. Let them cry out against the corruption in Bibles. I'm asking the Reformed Baptists to do this. When we come to a passage like Acts chapter 8 and verse 37, they don't have that verse in their Bibles. If they're using the ESV or the NIV or Bibles like it, this is Philip's answer to the eunuch's serious and important question. What doth hinder me to be baptized? We want to know that. What is the qualification to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he, that is the eunuch, answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's a wonderful verse. It's the answer of what is the qualification, and then it's defined for the, in the case of this eunuch that he believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. It ought to be belief with all our hearts, as Philip the Evangelist declared. You know, the Lutherans still hold the doctrine of baptismal regeneration brought over from Rome. The Presbyterians will deny it if you ask them about it, but when you read the Westminster Confession of Faith... Here is what it has to say, and I hope you can listen very carefully. The efficacy of baptism. The efficacy, that means its ability to accomplish its end. The efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered. Yet, notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered... But really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth to, according to the counsel of God's own will in His appointed time. If you want to get rid of the legal talk there and just hear what they're saying, is we don't hold the baptismal regeneration just like the Lutherans. We believe that when an infant is baptized, It is guaranteeing the future regeneration of that child. It's not tied to the moment when the water was applied. And so they escape baptismal regeneration of the Lutherans and the Catholics with talk like that. That by baptizing that baby, the, the efficacy of it, the regeneration and the conveyance of grace to that child is not tied to that moment, but it is tied to that act at some point in time according to God's own will. We're thankful that they're Baptists, and we're thankful that they practice believer's baptism by immersion. We just wish they would realize that rebaptizing anyone that comes to them from the Reformed faith acknowledges that the Reformed don't baptize. Right. And so, why, why do they want to be called, be called Reformed Baptists, and that that includes Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and other leaders of that movement? There's so much more that could be said but I want to quickly go through this. We wish that they would not refer to the church, meaning the Roman Catholic Church and its Protestant daughters that came out of her. Whenever we use the word singular church and we're describing any body bigger than a local church, you had better be very careful in hearing that word and in using that word because it leads to heresy. We do not believe in a denominational church. We do not believe in a worldwide church in any formal way. The Catholics have a church, and there's the Lutheran church, but we don't understand it that way. The Bible doesn't speak that way. It speaks of the churches of Galatia. It speaks of the churches of Asia, because each local congregation is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the body of Christ individually and locally considered. And whenever we use the collective noun, the church, we better be very careful about using it, or we end up with a denominational church, and the Reformed all do that. The church. When they they say, the church is always held, what they mean is the Roman Catholics first, then the Reformers coming out of it believed this. And and they're using the word church to describe what in the Bible isn't even a church at all. It's the great whore of Rome. We... Wish that the Reformed Baptist would understand that church history should not start in the 17th century because it's 17 centuries too late to be the church of Jesus Christ. Right. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, where was his church for 17 centuries? It wasn't on the seven hills of Rome. That's the opposite of his church. That's the enemy of his church. That's the persecutor of his church. I wish that they would go to Daniel chapter 7 and ask the question, Who is the persecutor and who are the persecuted in this chapter? Daniel 7 has the four empires of the world and a little horn that grows out of that Roman Empire that makes war against the saints of the Most High God. Who is making war against the saints of the Most High God and who are the saints? Because they're two different parties in that passage. Why should Reformed Baptists teach their children that Baptists began in the early 17th century or the 1600s? We come back. We, come, we trace ourselves back to John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the apostles. And if you were to go look up the three witnesses of Baptist history, it's a nice little short, easy to read right. summary. You can even get the testimonies of the historians of the Reformed denominations that there have existed by various names hidden away in places of Europe a group of people that held to Baptist principles from the days of the apostles. They admit it. As I was speaking about baptism a few minutes ago, both Martin Luther and John Kelvin admitted that the scriptural and ancient mode of baptism was by immersion. But Catholicism had too much of a hold on them for them to stick to it. And the simplicity of that faith was too much for them to grant. And to humble themselves to leave their intellectually superior denominations and join the poor, ignorant Baptists in Baptist baptism was too much, so they didn't. But their writings prove, especially Luther when he, was first, when he first tried to leave the Church of Rome, admitted that immersion was the scriptural and ancient mode, and that it was necessary because it had the figure described in Romans chapter 6 of a burial and resurrection. Yes, we believe that. We agree with that. But he couldn't stick with it, and he didn't stay with it. We're glad that they want to mention a Reformation. It's just the wrong Reformation. We wish the Reformed Baptists looked at Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 10 as a more important Reformation, than the one that took place in the 16th century. Sacraments or ordinances. Most Reformed Baptists practice believers' baptism, and/or they practice close or closed communion. There's three ways for a church to have communion. It's open communion. Anyone that walks through the door can participate. There are no questions asked. Close communion is you may commune with us as long as you meet a few basic qualifications like being baptized and you're a Baptist, or you're a primitive Baptist, or you're a Reformed Baptist. Then there's closed communion, which is how we practice it. But what I want to mention for a moment is, why in their confessions of faith do the Reformed Baptists say there are two ordinances of the church? Where does that come from? It comes from sacramentalism. I've taught that to you before. I hope you'll remember that. Whenever you're reading a confession of faith and it says, we believe in two ordinances of the church, they're referring to baptism and the Lord's Supper. But why are those two being segregated out and put in a special place as being the two ordinances of the church? The Bible has ordained many other things for us to do. He's ordained for us to walk in good works. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 in the rules about marriage divorce and remarriage in first corinthians chapter 7 10 through 16 it says that this is what god has ordained for his churches paul would say in first corinthians chapter 9 that god hath ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel well there's the word ordain which is the res- which is the necessary action for there to be an ordinance and it doesn't even have anything to do with baptism of the lord's supper in any of those three places The reason that they separate those two is because Roman Catholics are the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth, and they have seven sacraments. When the Reformed churches came out of Rome, they kept two of them, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Of course, they had changed baptism to be an infant sprinkling ritual for the regeneration of babies, and in the case of Lutherans, They had kept the Lord's Supper to be the real presence of Jesus Christ in, under, with, and over the cracker. But they kept two, and they called them sacraments. What is a sacrament? Now the word sacrament does not occur in your New Testament. The word sacrament is an outward sign or an outward act of a New Testament church that conveys inward grace. That's what a sacrament is. And some Reformed Baptists will use the word sacrament. Most will not. They'll use the word ordinance. But see, the Catholics had seven. The Reformed churches have two. But they still call them sacraments because they still believe they convey grace. The water is still the means of God regenerating a baby. And the Lord's Supper, as in the case of Lutherans, contains the person, the presence of Jesus Christ. And the Presbyterians will say that you participate in Christ spiritually and really in the Lord's Supper. Where did the Baptists get it from? Because they're copying copying Rome that had seven sacraments, then the Reformed churches that had two sacraments, and they get down here and say, well, we've got two ordinances. Because we're really not sacramentalists like the Reformed or the Roman Catholics. We're going to call it ordinances, but there's two. And so you can tell where they got that from. Rome 7, Reformed 2, Baptist, 2 ordinances. There's many more ordinances in the New Testament. Right. Baptism isn't even an ordinance of the church. Baptism is an ordinance of the ministry. Or you can call it an individual ordinance. It's, it's an answer of one good conscience to God. It's not a person answering a church. It's a person answering God with their good conscience. And it's, an, it's a reminder... That we need to be careful in our terminology, in our language, and we call upon the Reformed Baptists to consider why do they separate and segregate these two ordinances to a special place, and why only those two, when there are so many more things ordained in the New Testament as our ordinances of what we're supposed to be doing. The singing in the church is an ordinance, because God has ordained and commanded it, and so it's part of our public worship. The regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship. That's the official name of something the reformers named. And I appreciate their name for it, though we've always known it from the Bible as, don't add to it or take away from God's word. Don't go to the left hand or the right hand. Teaching them to observe whatsoever things I have commanded you. Those verses are good enough but they've given it a nice title. The Regulative Principle of Worship. That means, how is our worship regulated by the Bible? And they came up with this principle. Every time God gives a positive commandment, it excludes and rules out all other possibilities regarding that particular aspect of worship. If God says, do it this way, then he doesn't have to say, don't do it that way, don't do it that way, and don't do it that way. Because the positive command is enough to rule out all other options. We've been over this before. We typically approach it because it's called the argument from silence, those people that take the opposite position. Those who reject the regulative principle of worship say, if God doesn't condemn it, then he must allow it. Luther was close to that. Luther did not come up with the regulative principle of worship. The Presbyterians came up with it. They're the ones that formalized it and stated it, along with the Reformed churches out of Holland. Because Luther was more, if the Bible doesn't condemn it, and those of you who read the preface to James and Jude, you saw how loose he was about the Bible. He he told you how loose he was. Well, it's just my opinion. I don't think it's much of a book. Other people can have whatever opinion they want to, but if you read that and I send those things for you to read, it only takes you a few minutes of your time and I will not send you anything that I do not feel is worth your time to be established in the truth of God's Word. We're glad that some Reformed Baptists understand and teach this important distinction of the regulative principle of worship, though few truly practice it. We're glad that they'll teach it, but we wish they would practice it. Let me give you an example. The number one use of this principle to the Reformers was musical instruments. The Reformers didn't have musical instruments in their churches. And the regulative principle of worship ruled out musical instruments because God said, sing. Forget... That's... Yes... So far, we're together with them. God said sing in the New Testament. And so God said sing as the commandment for our music that rules out playing. If he wanted to include playing, he would have said playing. And for the people that say, well, he didn't condemn playing, we say, you're arguing from God's silence. And if you take that position, you can prove almost anything with the Bible. Because God does not waste the pages or the ink to tell you all the things you shouldn't do when he gives you a positive command of how it should be done. When God says sing, that means you don't play. When God says you use the fruit of the vine, you don't use Coca-Cola or milk for the Lord's Supper. When God says unleavened bread, you don't use chips or cookies. When God said to Noah, you build an ark out of gopher wood, he didn't mean spruce. And he didn't have to say, thou shalt not use spruce or pine. Or oak or any other kind of wood, because he said use gopher wood. That should it's a simple point, but you'd be surprised. When somebody finds out that we don't have musical instruments, they'll they'll often respond by saying, Where does the Bible say you can't have musical instruments? Well, the regulative principle of worship says so. And the regulative principle of worship, which the reformers identified with that name, although it's as ancient as Deuteronomy chapter five and twelve. When God gives a positive commandment, it rules out all other options. When God told Israel that the Ark of the Covenant was to be moved by staves through rings on the corners of the Ark of the Covenant, that ruled out all other options. It wasn't to be carried on a new ox cart, even if that new ox cart had been carefully made and had been made with the best of intentions by David for moving the Ark of the Covenant. By telling us how it was to be moved, he didn't have to say, don't move it on a new ox cart. Because he had said it is to be carried by the priests on their shoulders with the staves through the rings that are on the corners of it. Contrary to their own regulative principle and the practice of their Reformed fathers, most or all Reformed Baptist churches have instrumental music in their assemblies. They call themselves Reformed Baptists, but the Reformers held to the regulative principle of worship and didn't have musical instruments. Martin Luther said the organ was the ensign of Baal. John Calvin said in his commentaries in the book of Psalms, When it would refer to the musical instruments under the Old Testament, he would describe it as that infantile and childish worship of God that we have put away in the New Testament. And so that we sing with the understanding instead of playing on instruments making noise, which was part of the childish worship of God. Remember when we were under a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ? There was a Reformation. And he understood the Reformation. But Reformed Baptists were disappointed. You claim to be reformed. The reformed came up with a wonderful name for a principle of of reasoning from the Bible called the regulative principle of worship. Some of you even maintain it, but you don't apply it. Apply it to your musical instruments. The New Testament commands singing, which is defined as teaching with grace and melody originating in the heart. Consider, you not only pick and choose your preferences from the Bible, but you're also picking and choosing from the reformers because Luther and Calvin rejected musical instruments. We're thankful for the fact that when we look in the Bible and God says, do whatsoever I have commanded you, don't add to it, don't take from it, don't turn to the left, or don't turn to the right. And Jesus would tell his apostles when he commissioned them, teaching others to observe whatsoever things I have commanded you, that does not leave any room for other things. God's positive command is enough and that is where we rest our case in the Bible. We're glad Reformed Baptists believe and practice a metaphorical use of the elements of the Lord's Supper. We as Baptists hold the Lord's Supper as being metaphorical. It's a metaphor. The bread is a picture or a symbol or a metaphor of the body of Christ. The blood, the, 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 the wine is a metaphor And we understand it that way of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Catholics take it literally. This is my body. The Lutherans take it as a synecdoche. This is part of my body because the cracker is still there. The Presbyterians take it as a metonym. You are receiving Christ spiritually when you take the Lord's Supper. We see a metaphor. Don't worry. If you don't know any of those words, then you need to go to an outline on our website and find them. It is a fantastic study of four words in the Bible. This is my body, and men have killed each other over the interpretation of those four words. We would not kill anyone over those four words, but we would certainly argue the truth from those four words. We as Baptists look at it as a metaphor. When Jesus said, this is my body, he just meant this bread represents my body. This bread stands for my body. This bread is a symbol of my body. Like, if I were to hold up a picture of my wife and say, This is my wife, you don't understand that that little piece of Kodak paper or whatever kind of paper you, you printed that, I printed that from, is my wife, but it's a representation of her. The words, This is my body, the bread is a representation of Christ's body for us to remember the tearing of his body and the shedding of his blood. The Catholics see the, the, this is my body. The bread totally changes its substance. Chemically and in every other way, it totally changes to the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. The Lutherans say the real presence of Christ comes into the cracker and it's in it, under it, with it, and over it. But you still have the cracker. Because see, the Lutherans were honest enough that, you know, when they ate that cracker from Rome, they knew it was still a cracker. And so in order to hold Rome and hold their senses and not lie to themselves, they put the two together with consubstantiation. The Presbyterians come along and say, we don't even want to go as far as the Lutherans. You just eat and drink really and spiritually of Christ as a metonym. This is my body, meaning this is the vehicle and this is the cause for the effect that you're going to have by partaking of Christ through a metonym in that figure of speech. We as Baptists, it's a metaphor. That means it just represents. That's all. There's no power. it's not conveying grace. Nothing changes. it's a cracker. It's, a, it's just a symbol. When Jesus said, "I am the door," all he was talking was metaphorically. There are, there are characteristics of me that are like a door. A door has certain characteristics. It opens a way of passage. and Jesus is the door to God. And he said, "This is my body." We thankful." that the Reformed Baptists generally understand that and hold that with us, a metaphorical use of the elements of the Lord's Supper. But why do they want to be called Reformed when to use that word Reformed attaches them to, to Lutherans with the doctrine of consubstantiation in the Presbyterians that are receiving Christ spiritually through the Lord's Supper? We would also add to Reformed Baptists that we're appealing to right now when it comes to communion and the Lord's Supper, That the Bible demands wine. How do we prove that the Bible demands wine? Do you know how to prove that to someone? The fruit of the vine is not good enough. The fruit of the vine could be grape juice. Can't be strawberries or raspberries. Wine. Fruit of the vine. That's not how we prove it. We go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where it says that some of the Corinthians were drunken. They were drunk participial adjective describing the state of intoxication and Paul did not correct their beverage, he just corrected their abuse of the supper in other ways the Bible also demands unleavened bread because it was taken from the feast of unleavened bread at the last Passover when Jesus instituted the supper and an appeal is made to that unleavened feature in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that let us keep the feast not with the leaven of malice and wickedness and the Bible demands closed communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where it tells that church that there is, a, there is a real difference between those in and those out, and the in and the out is based upon the church's judgment, and that they have authority to judge those that are within and those that are without God judges, which chapter by itself is sufficient to prove that every local church ought to commune only with their own members because it's only their own members that they have such jurisdiction over right. and such authority over to put in or to put out. These people that float around and pop into your service, they're outside. They can't come inside and commune with you. You don't have any authority over them as a church. Church offices. We're glad that the Reformed Baptists deny the office of priests of Rome in the New Testament church. However, by picking up ruling elders from the Presbyterians, they've added to the New Testament's instruction for church officers. There's only two offices in the New Testament church. Do you know their names? The names that are given to them in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Bishop, deacon. Elder is not the title of an office. Come over to to Philippians chapter 1. Elder is a broad term describing someone in authority or an old man, but it's not a real title of an office like bishop is. Apostles were elders. Prophets were elders. Bishops were elders. There were the elders of the Jews, the elders of Egypt. It's, it's a broad term without a name like bishop or pastor-teacher, which is a descriptive phrase describing the work of a bishop. Philippians chapter 1 is another place where we have these two offices. Philippians 1 and verse 1. Paul and Timotheus the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. There's the two offices that are given to us in 1 Timothy 3, where we've got about seven verses listing the qualifications for bishop, and then about six verses for the qualification of deacon. The Reformed Baptists have picked up this body of ruling elders from the Presbyterians. These ruling elders don't have an office in the Bible. There's nothing like them described in the Bible. They don't teach. They don't preach. They're not full-time. They're just like a board of governors. They're like a, a, uh, a board of directors. They're like a committee that helps run the church, but it's not found in a New Testament. They have full-time vocations. The Bible says they that preach the gospel should live of the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the Bible says that those who are called to serve the captain, the Lord Jesus Christ, are not to entangle themselves in the affairs of this life. And yet all their ruling elders entangle themselves in the affair of this life, and neither are those men chosen for their office because they're apt to teach because they're not apt to teach, generally. That's why they're in the office of a ruling elder instead of what they call a teaching elder. So they end up with a third office, so they have deacons, and they have pastors and teachers, and they have a ruling elder. And they have several of them. And the ruling elder is to take care of the church along with the pastor. But there isn't an office for them found in the New Testament. In the New Testament, those who do the ruling are also doing the teaching. Look at Hebrews chapter 13. And remember, brethren, and remember those who will be listening to this any time else, through our website this is a skeletal summary only of our differences much more could be said has been said will be said in other venues in other sermons we are just trying to touch the surface of some of the differences that we have with the reformed baptists in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7 Paul said remember them which have the rule over you so there's a ruling elder who have spoken unto you the word of God. That's a teaching elder, whose faith follow considering the end of their conversation. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, where that bishop's qualifications are described, he is supposed to be ruling his wife and his own family well so that he will know how to take care of the church of God, and he is supposed to be apt to teach. The same office does both jobs. There is not this other office... And they got that from the Presbyterians. Where the Presbyterians got it, who knows? Maybe they got it from the College of Cardinals. Because there's such a hierarchical structure and bureaucracy that runs the Church of Rome. We deny. We believe that there is a bishop and there is a deacon. The bishop is to do the teaching, and he can oversee the Church of God by himself or in a large church with multiple bishops but there's no more need for multiple bishops than there is multiple deacons, depending on the size. One bishop named Titus was left in Crete by the Apostle Paul to set in order the things that are wanting. He did not need a synod to help him. He did not need a presbytery to help him. He could do it himself. And Paul left him there and says so in Titus 1.5. Let me keep going on quickly. Ministerial titles. Our Lord Jesus Christ taught in Matthew chapter 23 that the apostles should call themselves brethren and each other brethren. They should not use any other title, not master, not rabbi, not father. We avoid reverend, doctor, pastor, except as an adjective. We don't want it as a title. The Bible's very clear about trying to avoid titles for men in a religious sense, that's attached to their name and used for public recognition by calling them by those titles. The Apostle Peter, when referring to Paul, in 2 Peter 3.15 doesn't call him the Apostle Paul, he calls him our beloved brother Paul. Just like Jesus taught them to in Matthew 23 when he says, Call no man father upon earth because you are all brethren. We are all brethren. Brethren. We wouldn't use reverend for anyone except the Lord himself because Psalm 111 and verse 9 tells us holy and reverend is his name. We, We reject the church of Rome that calls the Pope the most holy reverend father. Now don't call any man father. Holy and reverend is his name. And then the Pope is called most holy reverend father. How much more blasphemous can you get? No wonder the Bible says they're full of blasphemy. You know, I like... Elihu's attitude about titles in the last two verses of Job chapter 32 as as he's warming up and introducing himself to the four wise men he says these words let me not i pray you accept any man's person neither let me give flattering titles unto men for i know not to give flattering titles in so doing my maker would soon take me away. Is that pretty serious language? I don't know how to do it. I won't do it. If I did do it, my maker would soon take me away. I don't give flattering titles to men. You four old men, you should know better. Age should have taught you something. You should have been able to figure out Job's predicament, but you didn't. And I'm not going to give you flattering titles. I'm just going to boldly declare the truth that you don't know what you're talking about, but he that is perfect in wisdom is with you, so if you'll listen to me, you can learn something. And that's what Elihu said and did. We wish the Reformed Baptists would reject their participation in Rome's holy days. The Reformers knew to reject some of those things, and those holy days like Christmas, and Easter, and all-hallowed evening. Reformed Baptists, we wish that you would separate from Rome and come out from among her and not touch the unclean thing. We wish that you would look at passages like Deuteronomy chapter 12 that tell us when we find out how the pagans have served their gods, we should not inquire about their traditions or customs and use those traditions or customs in the worship of the true God. We should not learn the way of the heathen in Jeremiah chapter 10. And at the signs of the heavens, deck ourselves a tree with silver and gold. We don't want to be unequally yoked together with any aspect of public, blatant, religious idolatry, like the holy days of Rome. We want to follow the words of the Lord Jesus in Re- Revelation 18.4, Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. So here's another difference, and it's a big difference, and it's a painful difference. And most people will not pay the price to drop Roman Catholics' holy days of observance during the calendar year. Most won't do it. And we call upon the Reformed Baptists to come out and follow their Reformed Fathers if that's what they need and reject those holy days. We wish that they were following the Bible and would reject them for better reasons than their Reforming Fathers. Of course, there's... Outline and document after document on our website showing dozens and dozens of reasons why we don't hold those days. We as Baptists were instrumental in the Continental Congress adopting the Bill of Rights to avoid any state-imposed church or religion. Whether Luther's Germany or Calvin's Geneva or Zwingli's Zurich, and the Swiss Civil War that resulted from those, especially Zwingli, and his particular canton around Zurich, the reformers followed their Roman Catholic training to make state churches. To reform reform thinking, because the covenant is through children, and church and state ought to be united. They're thinking Old Testament. They're always thinking Old Testament. They're thinking Old Testament circumcision is where we go to teach baptism. And, and there's more coming up. They go to the Old Testament to teach a New Testament Sabbath. There isn't a New Testament Sabbath. The Sabbath was entirely done away on the cross. That's like saying there's New Testament animal sacrifice. To say there's a New Testament Sabbath. The Sabbath was a special sign to the Jews only. You can't bring it across the chasm of the great reformation that occurred between John the Baptist and the destruction of Jerusalem, and described in Hebrews 9.10. State churches. The Church of England. Why is that its name? What does that mean? The Church of England. Who, Who was the head of the Church of England? The King of England. They were committing fornication with the kings of the earth. Where did they get that idea? From the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. Who presided over that council? Constantine the Great, the emperor of Rome, presided over a council of churches and their ministers. But I can tell you, we were not there. Those were churches that swore allegiance to the state and were part of the state church. In this country, the persecution that rose against Baptists in our country was because of states that had a state church. In, in Maine, it was the congregational church. In South Carolina, it was the Church of England, and it's because of state churches that Baptists were persecuted. Baptists, when they say separation of church and state, they do not mean that government, which is the state, should not have religion, should not have prayer, should not have a Bible, should not swear allegiance to Jesus Christ. It just means they should not impose a religion or a denomination or a church or a ministry or the support of that ministry on the populace. Right. Do you know that in the early days of South Carolina, if you were a citizen of South Carolina, part of your taxes went to support the ministry of the Church of England because it was the state church. Right. And if you were in Maine and you were a citizen of Maine and you believed in believers' baptism, and you preached it, you still had to pay taxes to support the infant sprinklers that were preaching against you and having you hauled into court. Right. We asked the Reformed Baptists, why do you want to be associated with people like that? Lutherans, Anglicans, Congregationalists, who impose their denomination and their church upon the populace By uniting state and church in such a way that the state and church were the same thing. Or the state enforced one church upon others. We as Baptists believe in the freedom of religion. We will give Muslims the right to worship the way that they choose to worship, Mormons the right to worship, the way they choose to worship, and Roman Catholics to do the same as long as we as Baptists have that same privilege and that the government will not impose either Islam, Mormonism, or Roman Catholicism on us. And so we appreciate religious freedom for that reason. And we will give other denominations their freedom if they will give us ours. And so America is a wonderful place because there is no state church. And we can worship freely like we do this day. But it has not always been this way. And we live in the rarest of times, if you look at the 2,000 year history, since the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles to our present day today. We live in a very small period of time where we had such freedom. Thank the Lord for it. You don't pay taxes to support a state church. Your government, your government will subsidize your little Baptist church if you will give and claim it on your tax return. God bless the IRS. We, we are, I'm, I'm not going to go through all the math again with you. It's pretty neat. It is pretty neat. We call upon the Reformed Baptists. Consider what you're doing when you attach that name Reformed to your church. Those state churches persecuted us in the past. And those reformers all believed in state churches if they could get them accomplished. Right. In Holland, in Germany, in Switzerland, in England, in South Africa. Just go look around. Where'd they learn that feature? From Rome. Right. Oh, I forgot to, I didn't finish one little aspect I was telling you. When you have a state church, when you baptize the baby, two things happen. Well, really, it's one in their mind, but to us, it's two. Two things happen. They consider the same. It's born again. That's, a, that's not very important to them. It, it becomes a member of the church, and it becomes a citizen of the state. Right. See, we don't believe that. We reject all that. That's ridiculous. That's committing fornication with the kings of the earth. That's a church coming into a relationship with the kings of the earth that the Bible rejects. Christian Sabbath. Many Reformed Baptists hold to a Christian Sabbath, a hybrid of Sabbatarianism and New Testament Christianity, which they copied from the covenantal Reformers. The Reformers, wanting to bring as much forward from the Old Testament as they can, brought forward circumcision and replaced it with baptism, and they bring forth the Sabbath and make it a Christian Sabbath, so that the Puritans held that the first day of the week, not the seventh day of the week like the Jews, but the first day of the week, was to follow all the rules of the Old Testament for the Sabbath day. They couldn't work or do anything on that day, just like the Jews were required to maintain the holiness of that day. But the Sabbath, and I've taught you at length on this, The Sabbath was a particular Jewish sign between God and the people of Israel from Mount Sinai to the destruction of Jerusalem, and it was for no one else but them. It was to give them rest for their years of bondage in the land of Egypt and for them to have a particular sign from heaven in addition to circumcision that they were his people. Jesus nailed the Sabbath to his cross, it says in Colossians chapter 2, around verses 16 and 17, and entirely put it away. He was the fulfillment of it. He gives us our rest. We don't have to have that rest on the first day of the week, seventh day of the week, or third day of the week, because our rest is spiritually fulfilled in Christ. But they bring it forward, because they're following the reformers that are following the Catholics, that are following the Jews, and bringing stuff out of the Old Testament that should be left back there in the dustbin. Is that disrespectful to say that? The Apostle Paul would say that the Old Testament was waxing old like a garment, and it was to be put away, because we have something new that's better. He called that Old Testament ceremonial worship beggarly, weak, poor, carnal, sensual, rudimentary, We have the best, the New Testament. We don't have a Sabbath, except in Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of that. We rest in Him. Your treatment of the first day of the week is between you and God. There isn't a set of rules that we pull out of Leviticus or Exodus to tell you how to treat that day. I may treat it differently than you do. My Father taught me to treat it differently. We didn't treat it like the Sabbath But we treated it specially because we wanted it to be the Lord's Day. And we wanted to keep the Lord the central theme, thought, and activity of that day. Reformed Baptists. You know, we love their regulative principle of worship, but they have Sunday schools. Where did they get the idea of a Sunday school? They got it from the Methodists 150 years ago. Sunday schools were invented by the Methodists who have generally held a social gospel for 150 years George Whitfield knew quite a bit more than the average Methodist pastor today but the methodists came up with this idea for for two reasons they invented Sunday schools first of all all the little urchins were causing a lot of trouble on Sundays because they weren't at work this is back when children worked because they weren't at work they were running in the streets and causing trouble And so there's a we need to get them off the streets. Second of all, they're illiterate. And they're never going to learn how to read unless we create schools on Sunday and we'll teach them how to read. That's where Sunday schools came from. They're only 150 to 200 years old. They were invented to take urchins off the street so there wasn't street fighting between kids who weren't in mills, mines, or woods working. And because they were illiterate, we'll teach them how to read. Well, along comes good-thinking Methodists. We'll get them saved while we're keeping them from fighting in the streets. And while we're teaching them English, we'll get them saved. And that's where Sunday schools came from. And so then, gone to seed, you're in, you're in uh, Hammond, Indiana. And you've got a pastor named Jack Hiles who got so many buses and had them busing people all over the place to holding churches so that they could hear a sermon from the home-based church until he could tell the Guinness Book of World Records 20 years ago that he broke 100,000 in church through a bus ministry because you're bringing all these little kitties into the Sunday school. It's not taught in the Bible. God ordained teachers for his public worship, and they weren't women. And the teachers in most Sunday school classes, in most churches, including a lot of Reformed Baptist churches, are women. Enough on that. Dealt with it before, can deal with it again. You can ask as many questions as you want or go do some research yourself. I fear when they put so much emphasis on confessions of faith that they replace the Bible with the London Confession of Faith of 1689. It is so dangerous to be often, constantly, or put in writing that we are bound or we are faithful to a certain confession of faith. Because what if, what if we said the 1689 London Confession of Faith, based on the Presbyterian Westminster Confession of Faith, is a summary of what our church believes. And so then all the other churches of all the 1689 consider us somewhat in step with them. Now, what if by God's grace and through His Spirit, He shows us in the Bible that there is no eternal generation of the Son of God? And so, Article 3, Chapter 3, and the third paragraph of the London Confession of Faith all of a sudden is wrong. Do you know how hard it is for, to tell a church then that we have to reject the London Confession of Faith? And then do you know what you have to go through with all the other churches that had approved of you because you had accepted the 1689 Confession of Faith that you were no longer holding to it? They would start accusing you of being anti-Baptist, anti-Trinitarian, as they have us. There's a danger in holding so tightly to a confession of faith. We warn our friends among the Reformed Baptists of the danger of that We warned them of the danger of associations of churches. The Bible does not teach about association of churches in any formal way. No matter how loosely an association might be organized, when it exists, it creates said or unsaid, spoken or unspoken, written or unspoken authority over that church. And once you're part of an association, if you were to be convicted, if we were to be convicted as a church, That we ought to change something that we have been teaching or we have been doing. Then there is this additional element that we've got to think about. Instead of just, thus saith the Lord. And you know, it's so wonderful. And the Lord has shown us things over time. He shows it to us in the Bible. We look at it. We make sure. we, We go back and review why we held the previous position. We see what the Bible's teaching. And when we're convinced that there's sufficient Bible evidence that we need to make a change, we make it. But if you're part of an association, now instead of just a pastor and his people studying God's Word, you have a whole body of ministers out there and other congregations that are exerting pressure on you. Because for you to take a stand, you are going to have to take a stand against them. You are going to have to leave their association unless they all see it the way you see it. Lord's... Do you know how blessed we are to be saved from all that? Anything God shows us, we can do. And what God has shown us, we have done. And we have jettisoned some things in the past. And God may show us in the future some other things that we'll throw out. And we can do it between Him and us. Pastor people, the Word of God. Lord, show us and we'll change. We pray for it. But if we had an association that we were connected with, even if it was a loose association. It is another form of pressure that bends churches to compromise the Word of God. I'm thankful for pioneers that went before us and who took the arrows in their back so that we can have the freedom that we have right now. Dear Reformed brethren, in your efforts of evangelism, we hope that you're not following any Arminian tendencies thinking that you're adding any souls to the book of life? Are you following Paul's objective of enduring all things for the elect? Second 2 Timothy 2.10 Do you follow Paul's method of looking for God-worshippers? Acts 17, when he went into the synagogues, do you understand that the Great Commission was fulfilled by those it was given to and never repeated in the general epistles of the New Testament? We believe in preaching the gospel everywhere we have an opportunity where there are those that want to hear it. But let's make sure we're following the New Testament. The Bible warns about tradition repeatedly, that tradition will negate and nullify our worship of God, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And Reformed, brethren, you've taken that word Reformed and attached it in your, put it in your name and attached it to the word Baptist. The Reformers embody a system of tradition that we hope that you will stand against. Some elements of Roman Catholicism are disguised and esteemed in the Reformed churches. And it's the duty of apostolic Christians to identify and reject all those things. How can we teach our children to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints while we tell them to revere men like Martin Luther who attacked The canonicity of James approved the persecution of Anabaptists, taught baptismal regeneration and consubstantiation in the Lord's Supper. Tradition is dangerous. Reject it. Our Reformed brethren, do you understand all that the Bible says about prophecy and what it says? Do you know the book of Daniel? Do you know in Daniel that there's a little horn that was to come out of Rome and make war with the saints of the Most High God? That that fourth empire that that little horn grew out of was the Roman Empire. And that little horn is the papacy of Rome. Do you know Matthew 24 and the fulfillment of so many prophecies in the New Testament about the destruction of Jerusalem? Do you know the man of sin in Second Thessalonians 2? Do you know the great whore that's riding upon the beast in Revelation chapter 17 is the Roman Catholic Church and she's the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Do you see the threat? Do you see the danger? When did she have her daughters? Who were her daughters? Who is like the whore? The whore caused John great admiration because he couldn't believe that it was a church of Jesus Christ that was drunk with the blood of the saints. And yet that great church had daughters. Who are the daughters? Are they the Reformed? Our Reformed brethren. If they are... Why are you using their name? Come out from among them and be separate. And our dear brethren, it may be it may be small, but we wish that you would consider what you have on you, on your rooftop, and where you got that phallic symbol that you have sticking up for most of your churches. We would, at this time, just to show that we're as we're as willing to cooperate as much as we can. We wish you would look at the Primitive Baptists and see their church buildings, that they don't have those obelisks standing up erect on their church buildings. Why do you have them? Where did you get them? Did they come from Rome or the Reformers? Or yes. Where did they come from? We consider you Reformed Baptists, our brethren. We're thankful for many things that you hold. We have not meant anything that we have said to impugn your salvation or to say that your name is not written in the book of life. You may be lovers of God and walkers and walk with God daily and love the Lord Jesus Christ and love His Word. We just wish you would consider some of these things. We have enumerated them so that others can know that we are not Reformed Baptists and there are some differences. We We appreciate everything God's taught us, my brethren here, and I hope that you're thankful for every word of God. The Bible has spelled these things out for us. It's not that difficult. We can see them. We don't like to fight. We don't like to be different, but we're going to when we have to. We've been accused of being heretics recently and our services marked off limits by Reformed Baptists. We're confused sometimes with the Reformed Baptists because we believe and teach the sovereignty of God and salvation, but there are many, and some of them substantial differences, and we wish that they would consider And I hope that we are thankful that God has shown us so much. Let's be faithful with everything He's given us. Let's not depart from His Word. As we read in Psalm 119 this morning, let us not depart from His Word because who has taught us? The Lord has taught us. And we're thankful for it. Lord, continue to teach us. What we do not see, open our eyes that we would see. What we're doing that is displeasing Thee, show it to us and we'll stop. Doing it. Heavenly Father, we want to follow Thee as closely as we can. Teach us Your statutes. Show us Your truth. Make us to go in the way of Your commandments. Order our feet in Your judgments that we will not follow our own path or our own course, but will follow only the Word of God. Thank You for saving us. Thank You for showing us the truth of Your Word. Bless it to us yet more and more. And we'll thank and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.